Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. No, it is pretty amazing, and, and, and I don't want to dwell on this uh, too long because I want to get into the Word, but it is amazing to think that, gosh, Darren, what was it? It's 2022, so maybe like uh, 2011 or 2012, we're sitting in that pavilion, that shelter house over there, and we had come here on vacation. Cause I don't know if you, you guys probably know this. My family and I are grieving a little bit. We're leaving on vacation today to go to see my family in Texas. It's going to be 107 there all week. And we are just so frustrated because it's like now the weather is perfect here. But we're going to 107. It's going to be so hot. If you know anything about me, we're going to spend the day at the water park. That is not Jim Murphy. I'm not a beach guy. I'm not a water guy. But I am all about the water next week. Um, But it was, so we used to come here for vacation every year, and I'm kind of sad. I live in my vacation spot. I feel like I've robbed myself somehow, and I don't, but yet every day's a vacation, right? I'm learning that. That, That's Mount Air's slogan. Every day's a vacation. Is that true? Anybody else here resonate? No? No? Nothing? Just me? Um, But we were here on vacation, and Darren and I were just sitting there, and uh, we were just dreaming. What does God want? As our friendship was growing, as our, as our family's connection around the gospel was, was growing, and I was thinking about the time that uh, the Andersons and Murphys and Dolacheks were at their house, I think maybe the year before, and just having this conversation about seeing God move and what does God want and us feeling this burden, but we didn't know what to do with it, right? And yet to hear what you sing and to see that, like, we're an actual organization now, affiliated with the denomination. We have sound equipment coming. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait. Like, it'll be here in, like, two to three weeks or six months. We don't know. Um, but it's ordered, and it's on its way. I promise. But, like, but to see... God is faithful, and he's faithful in much bigger things than this, but this is a significant thing that is happening here, and to hear you sing is just a reminder that the seeds that God planted in our hearts 11, 12 years ago comes comes to fruition. Patience is beautiful when we wait upon the Lord, amen? Amen. And so this morning, we're going to continue our walk through the Sermon on the Mount by looking at, uh, at two verses, which I'll get to in a minute. But before we dive in, Darren and I were talking about this, and, and we want to constantly remind us about what the Sermon on the Mount is and what it isn't. Because it is really easy, I think, sometimes to read different passages in isolation it's, you know, we could just look at this as if Jesus is doing one thing when he's really doing another, but it's important to remember the full story, the full context that he's writing into. These are not independent teachings. This is one teaching that has beautiful parts to it. 
And what we see is that in the Gospel of Matthew, there are these three big sermons in the Gospel of Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount is the first big sermon. And Christ's teaching is unrivaled in human history. There's no one that comes close to Christ. And what we see is that Christ himself is presenting himself not as one who is bringing a philosophy, not as one who is just merely laying down moral commands. He is not just giving uh, these, these good suggestions, but what he is doing is coming down and revealing himself as the true and better Moses, as not just one uh, who, who is receiving a law and then giving. No, he is the law giver. This is the word of life, giving the words of life, and revealing to us as uh, what the kingdom of God is, and that he is the king of that kingdom. Jesus is not laying a mere moral teaching. He's revealing the kingdom of God, and he is explaining the true underlying essence of the Old Testament law by showing us that first and foremost, he is the, the, uh, the, the king and the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. It all points to him. And it doesn't just point to him, but he is actually the fulfillment of it. He lives it perfect. He lives every aspect of it perfect. He is the great high priest of it. He is the great king. He is the great prophet. He is the true and better temple. He is the, he is the God of it all. And secondly, he's revealing that his kingdom is lived in and through his people who know him. See, the religious leaders of the day, and therefore the prevailing culture of the day, was extremely concerned with just outward behavior. But Jesus shows his kingdom goes much deeper. That God's law was meant to penetrate so much deeper. Jesus looks deeper than outward observance to the very intrinsic motivation of people, to our very heart. The kingdom of God, he is essentially saying, when it is planted in the human heart, overflows outward to new living. And this new living is not out of compulsion, but out of genuine joy, not a burden, but a delight. And refreshingly, living as Christ's people is much more than mere religious observances. And it is much more freeing and much more wonderful. So at a high level, so far, here's what we've seen. We've seen who the king's people are. What, what, what type of people are they? And he flips the world's narrative upside down and says, the king's people are those who are poor in spirit who recognize their need before God in a broken world, who mourn that need, who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they know they don't have it, who need mercy and therefore give mercy, who have, been, who, who have had their relationship with God restored to one of peace. Really, the word is shalom. It's this idea of wholeness. And therefore, we seek to bring wholeness to things around us. 
that the king's people are, are distinct in the world. There, there, there's a different quality about them. There's a, there's a distinctiveness that Jesus says those types of people, they're salt and light in the world. We see that they are people who promote life for the good of others. They see others as image bearers of God and not mere objects of pleasure and gain. Christ's people are not given over to anger, hatred, and lust solely out of religious duty, but because they genuinely hunger and thirst for righteousness. The fruit of the king's people is love, is kindness, is self-control. It's kind of like this. Terrible analogy. I'm a Cubs fan. I don't like Cardinals. That's not hard for me. I don't have to religiously work at not like, I'm not saying I, I dislike Cardinal fans. God's working on me on that. And that's primarily out of jealousy. <laughs> I've got one championship I'm celebrating. I'm jealous, freely admit. But I root for the Cubs. I don't like the Cardinals. It's natural. In a similar way. Not similar at all. But, but Christ's people hunger and thirst for human flourishing around them. They hunger, or they, they desire to not, to not just be driven by lusts and anger. They understand that it's more than just external deeds, but there's a heart posture that's, that from which all of our deeds and all of our words begin to flow from. And today we're going to look at just two verses. We're going to look at verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5, where Jesus continues to build on what the kingdom of God looks like in and through his people. And what Jesus does in these two verses, briefly but powerfully, is address marriage. Once again, so let, let, let's look at what he says here. This is the word of God. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Once again... Jesus brings out a common saying that everyone would have known. And what he does in bringing it out is he shows how, it is, how marriage has been misunderstood and misapplied. And in doing so, he reveals the norms of the kingdom and the sanctity of the marital institution. But right off the bat in this saying, we see that marriage has been marred and misunderstood for a long time. See, what's happening here is this idea where Jesus says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus is looking back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, that talks about how uh, if a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce, and the context of that passage is if a man divorces his wife for something indecent, is what it says. We'll get to that in a minute. And, and then gives her a certificate of divorce, and that woman then goes and remarries. If that woman's spouse 
second spouse dies, that first spouse can't remarry her again. And it's about protecting integrity and familial relationships, and, and it's, that's a whole teaching in and of itself. But what that did was the people of the day took that first phrase. They disregarded the, what the whole teaching and the narrative actually is and just looked at this idea of just give a woman a certificate of divorce and you're good. That's what they hung everything on. And so at the time of Christ, there were two schools of thought about marriage and divorce at the time based on this Deuteronomy 24 passage. Divorce was in one school. They focused on this idea of what Deuteronomy 24 says about something indecent. And they fix it. So one school said only sexual immorality. There is no reason for divorce outside of sexual immorality. There was another school of thought called the Hillel school that said something indecent literally could mean anything. So much so that one writer said, if your wife burns the dinner, you can write her a certificate of divorce. It said that if, your husband, if the husband was out and saw someone prettier, I'm going to write that certificate of divorce. So like, can you, like, so, so one is, is, is more strict. One is like for anything, literally for anything the man determines as indecent, divorce. So what we see happening here is that the religious leaders were, so, so you remember the passage right before this, Jesus talks about adultery. And he talks about how adultery is not just the act of extramarital intimacy, but it stems from the heart and lust is equated with adultery. And the religious leaders were really strict about this. You will not commit adultery. Remember in John 8, the woman caught in the act of adultery. What'd they do? They threw her at Christ's feet, ready to stone her, right? But what they were at the same time is they were much more open about these certificates of divorce. And they were rampant everywhere. Divorce was not an uncommon thing at the time of Christ. And women were being cast aside for nothing. And what Jesus and all a man had to do was just give her a certificate at his discretion for pretty much any reason. And in this culture, the man had all the power. A divorced woman would be put in a very difficult situation if a man gave her a certificate of divorce. So what that certificate did was it was like a pass for that woman to go get remarried so that she wouldn't end up in a terrible situation. And that terrible situation would be, number one, some women would have to resort themselves to prostitution to provide for themselves. They'd have to rely on a family member to take them in to provide for them. And when they were taken in by a family member, most often they were treated just about like a servant. Or number three, with that certificate, they could go get remarried so they wouldn't have to live on the street. But all the while, the man is thinking, I'm so good. I wrote her certificate. I'm good. She's good. Look at me. I'm a good man. I'm a righteous man. I gave her her freedom. I'm not an adulterer. And Jesus refutes this teaching and what sprang from it. He addresses how far from the mark the understanding of God, marriage, and his law is. And then says, and I want you to hear this, I, I say this knowing how hard what I'm about to say is. But I pray you bear with me. Jesus is saying not only is lust equivalent 
to adultery. But so is divorce. With one exception, which we'll talk about in a minute. Jesus, I know, I know this is a, a sensitive topic. I know that, that, that in this culture, and for most likely all of us in this room, we can, we can feel, oh, that doesn't ring right in my ears. My guess is there's not a single person here who has not been impacted by divorce in some way, whether going through it yourself or seeing someone you love walk through it. I've seen my own family and my immediate family just torn asunder by divorce. But I pray from the bottom of my heart we can hear the true and better word of Christ that speaks to us and how in him and in his words we find life, we find goodness, we find mercy, we find grace, and we find the beauty of God's kingdom. And in verse 32, Jesus is not so much making a statement about divorce as he is about God's sanctity of marriage. And what he does is hold out that marriage and God's kingdom is designed to be a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. This is, what, this is why he says, says in here, he says, okay, you've heard it said this, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife except on the grounds of sexual morality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Notice the, 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 the responsibility he's placing on the man in this situation. Like you men that are just rampantly divorcing your wives because they burnt the toast. You have sinned and your sin has now caused her to. And it's just caused grief upon grief upon grief upon grief. See, the breaking of a marriage has never been God's design. And it was never his intention for the profound mystery of the marital relationship. If we flip over, for example, to Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is directly asked by the teachers of the law, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? So now you think back to what I said about the two schools of thought. Any cause, any cause. They're like, is it, is, it, is it lawful for that? Meaning, unlike the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 19, Jesus is being directly asked about divorce. And look at how Christ answers. In verse 4 of 19, he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus answers by going back to the very beginning. And it is here that we see something beautiful. I wish, I wish that time allowed me to go further into a more robust teaching on marriage. And God willing, we will do so down the road. But for now, I pray that we see three things in this passage out of Matthew 19. And the first one is this. 
that marriage was designed for one man and one woman to be the fundamental building block of the world through which God works his glory and good in the world. Jesus, look, look, look what he does. See, Jesus points back right away to Genesis chapter 1, where God also, where, where it says God made them male and female. Male and female, he created them. In the image of God, he created them male and female. And then, he t and then what God tells us male and female is to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, and to with authority extend God's kingdom of righteousness throughout the earth. The second thing that I hope that you see is that husband and wife are joined together by God in a one flesh union. Jesus then, in the very next sentence, points back to Genesis chapter 2, where in the Hebrew, I love how it says this, God literally builds Eve from the rib of Adam and brings her to him. God himself gives away the first bride and joins them together so they are no longer two independent people, but one, one flesh, Two, united in intimate relationship as expressed in the sexual union, which brings forth joy and life. Two, united in a singular purpose for the glory of God in the world. Two, united as one, striving to live for the flourishing of each other. Where we live for the we, not the me. We are told in the book of Ephesians that the coming together of husband and wife in a one flesh union is a profound mystery that ultimately points to Christ and his church. So Jesus in Matthew 5 and in 19, here's what he's doing. In a culture that had so devalued marriage and the primary conversation was, how far can I go till I can divorce this person? What Jesus is doing is he is lifting marriage far above the mere sentiment of two people in love or far above the sentiment of this is just meant to be convenient or to make you happy or, or to just be this thing that, that is primarily in your hands. He is lifting it far above that. And he shows that marriage is God's design for a high and an eternal purpose. God himself is the joiner of a man and a wife. The book of Malachi says this, that God is there as a witness in the joining of man and woman. And they are to put on display the kingdom of God and the glory of God as they mutually give themselves to each other without fear of shame, rejection, betrayal, abandonment, and ridicule. Righteousness and justice are to be extended as husband and wife join together for a common purpose for the glory of their God. Oh, what a glorious institution marriage is. Christ holds it in the highest regard and is teaching us to do the same. But there's a third thing that we must notice. So the first thing that I want you to notice is that marriage was designed for one man, one woman to be the fundamental building block of society through which God builds, does his work in the world. 
and that husband and wife are joined together in a one flesh union. The third thing is that marriage was not intended to be torn apart by man. Look what Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This intrinsically gives the impression that is exactly what man has been trying to do since Adam sinned. Where it's fascinating, if you go back to Genesis 3, the first thing that we see is that God's, or man's relationship with God is broken, and then they instantly start to blame each other. What is Adam's first words? That woman you gave me. I'm throwing her under the bus, man. There's division in that relationship. Trying to store to the division and enmity that we see there has been growing ever since, but it is not what God has intended. So Jesus then is asked in Matthew 19, if all of this is true, then Jesus, why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce? And Jesus' answer, we cannot miss. Jesus answers, because of the hardness of our hearts, not because of God's intention. Look at what he says in verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. I find D.A. Carson's words extremely helpful in understanding Matthew 5 and 19, where he says this, Divorce is not a part of the Creator's perfect design. If Moses permitted it, he did so because sin can be so vile that divorce is to be preferred, or to be preferred to continued indecency. Divorce is never to be thought of as God-ordained, morally neutral option, but is always evidence of sin and hardness of heart. I don't think I need to convince anyone that this is true. Do I? And yet, while God's design for marriage is for life, Jesus does permit divorce and remarriage in some very particular cases. One is sexual immorality. But even in this, he doesn't mandate it. He permits it. Jesus is well aware that sin, sometimes horrible sin, will bring about divorce. And all of it will and does cause tremendous damage to all involved, and therefore he does provide direction to when it is biblically permitted. When the marital one flesh union has been violated by adultery. And secondly, we see as continued revelation occurs in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, that we see that God also allows it in the case of a non-Christian spouse abandoning their Christian spouse. Those seem to be the parameters for when the scriptures permit divorce and remarriage. But please don't miss the main thrust of Christ's words. It is not just about how, when, and who we can divorce. It's not even meant to heap shame upon those who are. Rather, Jesus is holding marriage high and saying that people do, 
or uh, uh, saying that his people should see that marriage is a gift to us, that marriage has a divine purpose, and that marriage points to something profound. We all know the beauty of a wedding, don't we? I mean, who doesn't love to see the bride come down the aisle? The greatest moment of my life after coming to Christ and being baptized, this is no joke, was watching my wife walk the aisle to me. I wept like a baby. The pastor and my best man had to help me stand up because I almost, I could not believe. I still can't believe she gave her, she's like, yeah, I'll take your last name and bear your children. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> Fooled you! <laughs> like, we all know the beauty of a wedding day. But what can often be missed, and what I think I'm learning as my wife and I are approaching 20 years of marriage. Can you believe that, mom and dad? 20 <laughs> years of marriage. That the even greater and more startling beauty is of a lifelong marriage. Of vows being embodied each and every day. When my wife and I do pre-marriage counseling, we always tell them, yeah, we're going to talk about the wedding day, but prepare more for the marriage than the day. But we often don't see the flower of this beauty until we meet couples who have been married for 40, 50, 60 years or more. When we see how their commitment in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow, and through painful forgiveness of one another, navigating devastating failures, soul-crushing grief, that even those have not torn them apart. We see the sweetness of covenantal love in an elderly couple. I love how Wendell Berry, the author, talks about this, that are growing too small for their skin. Have raised children and sent them out. Have built houses into homes. Have remained committed and still dance close after decades together. The familiar, not being worn out, but being beautiful, steady, and sure. This type of depth and beauty is only built through daily commitment to live as the king's people daily. Through the mundane and the extraordinary moments, but primarily in the mundane. Relationships are built in the ordinary. Marriages are built in the mundane, ordinary moments of life. And what we cultivate in times of comfort, we will draw upon in times of chaos. Living for Christ and how we live with my spouse, living for them, for the we, over living for me. I'll never forget one of the most profound things I've ever witnessed in my life was I'm sitting in a nursing home with my grandfather and my grandmother on my mom's side. My grandfather was in the latter stages of dementia. My grandmother was in advanced Parkinson's and in a wheelchair. These were the two people that I thought growing up never changed a day. 
They were as vibrant when I was five as they were when I was like 20. But as time began to take its toll on them, I'm sitting with them in this nursing home and my grandmother is in her wheelchair over here. And my grandfather's sitting over here in a chair and he's kind of spaced out and he's not really paying attention. And my grandmother, who's still with it, we're, we're talking, but then all of a sudden my grandfather just interrupts the conversation we were having and he goes, Agnes, in 62 years, there's not been a day you have not loved me. And she looked at him and she said, I will always love you, Bert. And then he goes, I'm going to go to bed now. <laughs> so my grandfather. So then we helped my grandfather get into his room. And after some painstaking effort, we get him to lay down. And my mom wheels my grandmother into the doorway. And I'm sitting right here, and my grandfather's right here. My grandmother's here in the, in the doorway. And I heard her say, sleep well, my husband. And he looks at her, he says, please come here. And so my mom wheels her to the bed. And my grandfather had a hard time moving. And he started to struggle in his bed. And I didn't know what was going on. And then he finally sits up and then he turns around and, and he struggles with all of his might to get up and he's shaking as he's walking over and he leans down and he kisses his wife. And then he slowly and painstakingly lays back down in his bed. That was the last interaction I ever saw between my grandfather and my grandmother. 62 years of, heart, of, of glory, of children, of hardship, of forgiveness, and yet through it all, the beauty of lifelong covenantal love is displayed. So what does this mean for us today? What are we to do with this? Number one, I pray that you see Christ, who is the true and better husband, and find rest and life in him. What does Paul say to husbands? He says to husbands, love your wife as what? Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Washing her with the word, presenting her to himself without spot or blemish. That Christ loved the church so much. The church is his bride. That's us. He gives his life away for her good even unto death. And everything Christ does is, is, is for the good of his bride. So that she is brought into glory one day where we will share in this bland's marital feast. He never gives up on his bride. He never, he never shuns his bride. He, 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 he loves her in an understanding way. He continues to be faithful to her. He is not one that has a wandering eye. He is not one that has many loves. His eyes are fixed on that intimacy that he has brought to us. And, he, and, and we will only find 
that we are able to live the principles of the kingdom when we submit ourselves and recognize we need this king to save us. That I'm poor in spirit and that I need Jesus to bring me the wealth that I search for. Will you find life in his name? And not just be two Christians in a marriage, but to have a Christ-centered one. Where the husband loves the wife and the wife respects the husband. Till death do you part. Let us all strive to have a high view of marriage. Let us all have compassion on those who have gone through the bitter waters of divorce holding out the great hope of Jesus. If you are here today and you have walked through a divorce, hear the message of life from the Savior. Forgiveness is found there. That does not have to define you. And if you are remarried, live according to this purpose with the marriage you have now knowing that his death covers our past, that his death walks with us, and resurrection and blood cover us today and secures hope for the future. You are not hopeless, and you will never be shunned here. But may we all be spurred to live out our marriages in keeping with the kingdom. If you are here today, and you are a follower of Jesus, steward the life of your marriage daily for the glory of God. Live for the we, not the me. The minute I look at my marriage through me, my marriage is headed for the rocks. The minute I begin to enter into a contractual relationship with my spouse, if you do this, then I'll do this. And if I do this, then you'll do this. You have just entered into a business agreement that's headed for disaster. But if your marriage is centered on rich, biblical, covenantal love, you will find that as you lose your life for his sake, you will find it. And you will find a depth and a beauty in your marriage that romance writers can't even touch in a community that desperately needs to see healthy marriages, healthy restoration, healthy lifelong commitment, and a true offer of grace. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come to you in the name of your Son, and God, these are weighty matters. And I feel so small and inadequate to be able to communicate them in the ways that bring truth and grace clearly. And so, Father, where I have fallen, been harsh, or not strong enough, Father, I pray that your grace covers that and that through your Spirit, you just sanctify all of us. God, I pray for the marriages in this room I pray for us as a church that we would with compassion cling to what you have revealed about marriage and that our stance on marriage would not be a statement on who we're against, but who we love and who we're for. And we are children of the King. 
who desire to live as his people in the world. Father, I pray for those in this room who are not married or not yet married. And God, we didn't have a time to get into it, but even the gift of singleness is a gift and can be used for your glory. So Father, bind us together to be true citizens of the kingdom, helping one another when we fall. And may we build our marriages, our lives, and our following you in the midst of daily life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.